Dadage's friends and family, this is part two of our final interview in the series on It Takes Credit to Make Money. Our returning guests are Wayne Brandt, formerly of Wells Fargo Bank, and Ron Sturzniger, formerly of Bank of America, two of the preeminent experts on the banking system. If you missed part one, please jump back and check it out. If you've already heard part one, well, then you know you are in for a treat today. Stick around. You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Wayne and Ron, let's pick up right where we left off in the previous episode. We ended with some great stories you gentlemen shared about transformative moments in your banking careers when you were put on the spot in a high-pressure situation to contend for your professional lives. Wayne, you called this the 15-minute rule, the idea that your entire career or life can change in just 15 minutes. It feels like we are all collectively in a moment like that. Now, let's talk about the 15 minutes that we're all going through right now. Let's advance to this present tense and the figurative 15 minutes of all of our careers collectively and how they're being influenced by current financial circumstances, by global pressures, and by what's going on in the banking system most particularly. And maybe we can start by looking back. And we spoke about each of your experiences within the big banks and the time you spent there. And Ron, maybe we'll start with you and the GFC, your legacy asset servicing experience, the countrywide experience, everything that was going on back in those days of the big short. How does that translate to today? Is it a worthy case study for us to look at to understand what's going on today? Yeah, I don't know that it is. If I go back to the great financial crisis, there was one huge difference between then and today. Great financial crisis, the government kept interest rates low, okay? We had very low interest rates and low interest rates hide a lot of problems. Now we have a high interest rate environment. It's really hard to compare what you did then to what you do today because your cost of capital is just so different. So the things that are the same is I do believe the Fed and the regulars are trying to help. I think they're trying to help business. I do think they want to stamp down. Well, I don't think. I know they want to stop inflation. That is their primary objective. And they're willing to slow down the economy to accomplish it. And that's why they've got high interest rates. That's completely different than during the great financial crisis, where they wanted to build employment, not slow it down. And they wanted to keep interest rates so that people would invest in business instead of keeping interest rates high to stop people from investing in business. So they are slightly different. Now, how you react to both is relatively similar. Your actions will be different, but your reaction will be generally the same. But I'll stop with that overview comment in case Wayne would like to make an overview comment before we get into specifics. I'll be very brief. I would just compare and contrast 
Ron mentioned something very seminal where the cost of capital is. I would mention, I compare and contrast this to the difference between a credit crisis and a liquidity crisis. The GFC was clearly a credit crisis that moved into a liquidity crisis. And it was a credit crisis because we were over levered. And I'm not going to go into all the gory detail. Your audience knows this. But it was a home ownership over leverage crisis, too much debt in the system. And that had to reprice. And once it repriced, it triggered a massive, this is a fundamental difference right now, a massive government response with bailouts and so forth, which you're all well aware of. Comparing and contrasting to the bank crisis today, and that was global. That crisis, all the counterparty risk was sold through many securitizations globally around the world. This crisis seems to be much more narrow. A moment in liquidity, a run on deposits, for example, versus all the credits, all the loans, all the home mortgages going sour at the same time. Now, the problem with the liquidity crisis is it often can lead to a credit crisis. When there's no liquidity in the system, what happens to your price? It just falls. And we may be seeing that in certain sectors like office and certain retail uses. What we hope doesn't happen is that it expands across all assets, you know, by banks, and we have a restriction of credit that creates a remarking of asset values. So I think we're contained right now. We're in a rising interest rate environment, as Ron points out. And so whether or not that leads us to a credit crisis is still undetermined. Can each of you share your bystander's perspective of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and help explain it in a way that our dad and his friends and family might be able to get their head around it and understand what happened there? I'd be happy to give that a go. So Silicon Valley Bank was not too dissimilar to other banks, okay? They had deposits, which they took in just like a bank. Well, let's just take a step back. What's the purpose of a bank? The purpose of a bank is to provide liquidity and the movement of money to facilitate an economy. Really simple. It takes credit to make money. But it also takes capital flowing throughout the economy so that people don't have to barter with goods, they can barter with tender. So banks are critical to the infrastructure of every economy in the world. And that's why the survival of banks is so important. So I'll start with that point. So how do banks work? They take in their deposits and then they lend that money out at hopefully a little higher than they pay for it. And which brings me to my first dad jokes. Here it is. This is the classic bank. They ask you to come in and give you their two cents and then they give you back a penny for your thoughts, okay? <laughs> that is spread lending, okay? I take a dollar, I hopefully I loan it for two. I get the extra dollar, that's the plan. So Silicon Valley Bank had the same business model that every other bank had. I've got $240 billion of deposits. My model says I will never need more than 40 billion liquid at any given time. Every model would generally say that. So they say to be cautious, we're gonna keep 80 billion. And by the way, these numbers are generally correct. So they're sitting on 80 billion of liquidity thinking on 240 billion of deposits, I'm totally covered. No model would ever say more. Then they started getting into financial trouble. There was a liquidity concern. The social media picked up. People started worrying about Silicon Valley Bank. So they had a slow run and 40 billion of deposits went out over a two week period. And Silicon Valley Bank said, no problem. I got 80 billion just in case this ever happened. So I still got 40 billion. That next 40 billion went out in a day. 
a day. It went from a run on the bank to a sprint. A sprint and social media. Everybody texting around Silicon Valley banks. One, I would complain about them a little bit is they had a concentration of customer type. Okay. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, JP, our, those customer types are so broad and disparate across the country. Silicon Valley Bank had a kind of a uniform customer type who moved at the same time. Okay. And they can now also, with an app, move money faster. They didn't have to stand in line at the bank, right? If they had to stand in line at the bank, they might have had another week for that second $40 billion to go away. So the bottom line was they lost all that money, the deposits withdrawn. Back to Wayne's point, they have the value. They just didn't have the liquidity fast enough. It was a time challenge more than anything else. But the government had to shut them down. And the FDIC had to insure their deposits. And that's how the whole thing resolved. But that was really the process I do believe that if the government could have figured out a way to slow the process down, Silicon Valley Bank would still be here. I do believe that the government could have slowed the process down and First Republic would be here. Because the one thing we do know, and Wayne and I came from big banks, but regional banks are critical to their local economies because they help with, I said, the facilitation of the movement of money in a local economy. Regional banks do that. We do not need JP Morgan and Citizens Bank just getting bigger. That's a challenge for the local economy. So it is disappointing and unfortunate that we lost so far three important regional banks Whereas I think if we just had a little more time, they'd all be in business today. And it's really fascinating, the connection that you laid out very effectively, Ron, between technology and these problems that have occurred. We think today a lot about the flow of information and how much it has accelerated exponentially, but you don't think about how that accelerated flow of information can lead to an accelerated flow of cash when you're dealing with a situation like this, and it becomes irrecoverable very quickly. Really fascinating. Wayne, any other perspective you'd like to add on that? Yeah, the great thing about Ron, you know, he teaches basically money and banking for a lot of us in the industry. So I always learn. That was one of my favorite courses as an undergrad, but I'm sure Ron could teach it better. But I would add just a second, two points. One is the regional banking system is very different in this country compared to others. So we're going to have more bank failures. It's just kind of the way we've evolved since 1933 when the banking system shut down on a Friday and opened up on March 15th, 1933 without FDIC. And this is what we have. We're going to live with it. Number two, mark to market versus held for sale. That's what kind of smoked Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and many of the others And it's very akin to what happened in the Orange County bankruptcy in 1994, which was long short. And it's not a lot different than what happened in the SNL crisis, where you borrowed short and lent long. You see a mismatched book. And that mistake that the banks made is that they did not market as assets held. They had deposits swelled in 2021 and 22. And instead of, what could go wrong? We'll buy treasuries. But they didn't market to market. It was just held for sale. So it was a run on the bank. Everything was just cascaded and accelerated, and they had to realize these losses because they needed liquidity to cover their deposit shorts. So that's just kind of banking 101. Like, don't borrow short and lend along. You're going to get caught. And that's what's kind of going in the system right now. That's a very manageable, hedgeable behavior that we can't seem to quite get right each of one of these cycles. And so it's the combination of the short-term obligations for repayment with long-term investments that the banks have made, and then interest rates come into play. Can you help make that connection, Wayne, as to what the rate changes did in that circumstance? 
Yeah, it absolutely crushed any fixed income instrument that the banks were holding. I mean, they really thought, God, we're hedging off our credit exposure. But when rates go up 450 basis points, this is the pain that, as everybody said, well, the banking system's beginning to break. And it may break some, but 80% of the assets you know, are held the money center banks. They're fine. They may have uninsured deposits, but their tier one capital is so big, they have the shock absorber. You go down to like a PacWest or First Republic, these are still fairly large banks, but they just didn't have the tier one capital to absorb this kind of just abrupt loss that occurred because of the abrupt change in interest rates. And Ron and I have talked about this. It's just the abruptness of 450 basis points rise, something is going to get caught. And this is some of the balance sheets that are being reorganized right now. The system will absorb it. We'll move on. But I'm more concerned about the impact of rising interest rates, refinance risk, real credit risk that it's causing in kind of sectors of our industry. Ron? Yeah. And Chad, I'll try to give you some simple economics. My depositor gives me money and I pay them virtually nothing for it, 0.1%, like we all make in our checking account, okay? I turn around, I know, great, and I invest that in four-year treasuries. But when I invested that in four-year treasuries a year ago, four-year treasuries were paying a half a percent, okay? That's not bad. I'm paying out 0.1, I'm making a half a percent, not terrible. Then the Fed starts raising the base rates. And as Wayne said, they went from half a percent, let's just say to three and a half, So I am now going to lose 3% per year for my next four years. That's a 12% loss. I have two choices. I sell that bond today for liquidity and I lose my 12% immediately, or I'm a big bank. I'm going to hold on to it and I'm going to lose my 3% over the next four years. If I can afford to lose my 3% over the next four years, I'm going to reloan money and make more money, but I stay in business. It was when I was forced to sell it today and take all 12% at once that you get crushed. So again, that's why time saves banks, right? And that's why these, this mark to market, take my first all 12 versus hold it to maturity and take three a year was such a difference. And to defend the banks, again, I shouldn't be a bank defender, I apologize, but I was one for a long time. Somebody has to be. The Fed kept rates so low for so long. I think the saying goes, there's nothing more expensive than free money, as we're now all finding out, right? And then when the Fed started to raise rates, they were saying it's transitory. This is just temporary. So instead of, and people blame the banks, why didn't you unwind these long-term. We didn't unwind them because the Fed was telling us it was transitory. It was it was short. They told us it was all going to be fine. It was all going to be fine. And then to me, I always love to place blame because the world does. The Fed has no blame for what they're doing today. The blame goes for what they did three years ago and two years ago and one year ago. They were way late to basically step up and fix the problem that all of this liquidity in the marketplace happened. So you had the US government, we'll call the fiscal policy, spending more money, adding more stimulus, and you had the Fed not doing anything with monetary policy, keeping interest rates low. Those two things combined over the last, really, three years when we started COVID has created such a challenge that the Fed has got to raise rates so much to stop what happened over those three years, it's going to be a relatively painful process. And that's where we're finding ourselves today. Yeah, I feel like if you look at wave harmonics and you picture waves going in sequence with one another, that the fiscal policy 
and the monetary policy aligned in such a way to produce a massive peak in that wave that just drove the inflation up, if you can think about it in visual terms. Yeah, very true. So we talked about a liquidity crunch. And Wayne, you talked about how if you're not careful and if things aren't navigated properly, that liquidity crunch can become a credit crunch. And then that's when things really start to be problematic, particularly for those of us in the real estate industry. Can you explain that a little bit more? And then can you talk about what we talked about at Terranea a few weeks ago? What's all this to do with 2025? And what's so important about 2025? Okay. So let's just look at kind of the restriction of credit as we take money out of the system to kind of go back to Ron's kind of the way he would view the banking system, what's happening right now. So the run of the banks and where they sit, nobody wants to make a loan right now. And I'm not talking about real estate. I'm just talking about general credit culture across the banking system right now. Even if you've got you know adequate tier one capital, you're well-reserved, you're in good stead with the Fed and Treasury. But nobody wants to take risk right now. This is not the time for bankers to be bold and courageous and go for market share. Bankers are not that ambitious. They're very calculating, very logical, and very scared at times. And that fear of lending is what's pervasive. Now, what does that mean for commercial real estate? I'm not one to write the obituary for the entire commercial real estate industry right now, the way some are doing for office and class B malls and other types of real estate. I just think it's one of these moments where fundamentals, except for a couple of these product classes, are relatively intact, but we have to reorganize our balance sheets right now. And that's what's happening. And that's the stress that's going to cause, if you have floating rate debt that's maturing in 23, 24, and if your interest rate caps have expired because all the money center banks smartly forced borrowers, and these are the biggest names in our industry, Vornado, you know, Brookfield, Blackstone, they all have the same issues floating out there. So it's massive amounts of liquidity that's going to have to flow into these balance sheets if they want to keep these assets to reorganize and reset at these down values. So that's what's going to happen. It's always much slower. Ron and I will share with you. It's much slower than what people expect. And people really are going to try to work these out with their existing lender in a very kind of quiet, less public way. The securitized debt will not go that way. Brookfield's default on two of its downtown LA loans. But most will find ways to extend, work through, recap, because there's still a lot of liquidity in the system. And you kind of steal from Sam Zell, who when I first met him, he said in 93, you stay alive till 95. I think it's going to stay alive till 25. I don't expect we'll be in a materially lower interest rate environment, but we will have sorted out the credit stress that's occurring right now. It's going to take two years. Be patient. If you got fixed rate debt, just lock in, lower debt, fine. And that's why a lot of the REITs have not traded off to 30 cents on the dollar. They're down. But you know, as Ron and I know, in the public markets, this is giving us a forward look to where 25 will be. And we're not putting all these companies in the cemetery where real tough credit crisis, but there's going to be pain. And you got to be very realistic about how interest rates are hurting you know, these balance sheets and causing folks to restructure and reorganize. Ron, what does your crystal ball say for the next couple of years? And how should people in the friends and family navigate these times if they're real estate investors and owners? So I would, taking off on what Wayne said, go back to the last five years. People were buying assets with 4% yields, which are fine. 
because they could get debt for 3%. And they bought a lot of real estate has traded hands over the last period of time. And to the money center, banks would say every year to the borrowers, by the way, I've got your loan. Let's cap the interest rates for another three years or cap it three years out, maybe cap it four years out. So feds started raising the rates in 2022. So in 2022, you could not get any more caps, at least not affordable ones. But everybody who was there be up to 2022 probably had a three-year cap. That's 2025, okay? Now, those assets, they've worked them well. They're not yielding 4%. They're not four and a half or five. That's good. They're improving the cash flows, but base rates are up 400%. That's just the base rate, let alone spreads that banks might want. So fortunately, you don't have to refinance, hopefully in 2023. You don't have to refinance in 2024. But in 2025, that cap comes off and now you've got to refinance at market rate. So the whole goal, in my opinion, is the Fed has been very clear. Interest rates are going to stay higher for longer until we defeat inflation. So there's no change in 23. Highly unlikely that rates come down in 24 because I don't think they will defeat inflation. So everyone is making a bet that by 2025, they have defeated inflation. And if the Fed starts to drop rates, every one of these people who are nervous today will be able to refinance those assets because now their assets hopefully using five, five and a half percent. Debt rates are hopefully back down to four, four and a half. Just so long as they're even and I'm not having negative leverage, they will get refinanced. We are all waiting on the Fed to determine liquidity in the real estate industry. That's where we are today. I know interest rates have always been important, right? But I never felt it quite as important as they are right now because 2022 or 23, 24 are gonna be just okay for real estate. And it all comes down to what happens in 2025 with base rates to find out if we can refinance. And I think that's for industrial, retail, multifamily office is completely different because I don't think we yet know the value of an office building. I just don't think we can figure it out. So those other food groups, I think they are not overvalued and they're not overbuilt today. Office may be overvalued and overbuilt today, and that's going to take a while to shake out. Wow. So bottom line is we all keep our fingers crossed and hope that rates come in some before 2025 and the whole system will correct itself if given the opportunity. And if not, I'm just going to go back to what Wayne just said. If not, the only source of refinancing is your current lender. No new lender is going to step in. So you are throwing yourself to some extent on the mercy of your existing lender and lenders will choose customers first. I'm going to say that again. They choose customer first, properties second, all things being equal. So your goal is to be a good customer and do what's right for that asset because you may actually be managing it on behalf of the bank, not yourself. And if they sense you are doing things to damage the value of that asset, you will not be a good customer (laughs) and you will lose the support. And this is a time where you need the support of your financial institutions. Just a really important point because many of these borrowers, and Ron and I have talked about this offline, but it's really subtle. When you sign a non-recourse loan, you think it's non-recourse, but that you have the non-recourse carve-outs for bad acts. And one of the concerns might be if you are considered a bad actor in the renegotiation, and there's lots of definitions that you could footfall on, your loan could spring recourse. 
Therefore, I think the advice as a former banker is exactly what Ron's saying is do the very best you can to help the bank. They're in a tough situation. They've got to change their accounting for how they're going to hold the loan. It can be very painful for them. The last thing they want is to have a bad borrower that's making their life, you know, negotiating everything, not sharing information. And that borrower will not be allowed to come back into the banking system at the levels that they maybe originally enjoyed. I remember when I was at Wells, it was kind of lower around the bank. Heinz put back a building. I think it was 2010, 2011. It was no big deal. It was just logical. Like they were hung and the bank was hung. So fine. But they handled it in the most professional way and emerged out of the great financial crisis as one of the largest office borrowers for Wells Fargo and other money center banks. And that's going to play through now. And any stressed assets, they'll work with their banks to get through them. But it's behavior is really important in moments like this. Yeah. And what I find fascinating about what you and Ron are talking about now is, and it goes back to the emphasis that both of you put on the role that you had when you were in the big banks and building customer relationships and being of service to your customers. One question I have for you, Wayne, is now that you're on the other side of that equation, now that you've crossed over to the dark side and you're a developer and real estate owner operator like me, Do you feel that the people that are left in the banking system still value customer relationships as much as you and your generation did? And does that ability really exist? Because I certainly see an erosion of the concept of relationship, and it's all just been replaced by regulation and a systematic approach that doesn't take the human factor or the relationship factor into the equation? Great question. And I think what modern banking is about is really understanding compliance and legal and maneuvering in the environment of Dodd-Frank. So your most sophisticated, experienced, smartest banker, he or she is not in control of their destiny the way they could really direct credit and direct business. And that's where the state of banking is. And you as a borrower, you have to kind of say to yourself, don't ever be too loyal to your bank because your bank will most likely not be loyal back to you. So that's why you need diversity of capital sources, for example. So yes, I've gone over to the entrepreneurial side. I have bought several properties since leaving Wells Fargo. And my line bank was a very, really well-known community bank here in Los Angeles. I did six loans with them, got loans with others. And right with this banking crisis, they fired all of their real estate department. Half the loans have been sold to Freddie or Fannie. So to get your point is I had a relationship. The relationship was gone. I mean, when people bring it to my attention, oh, this is so terrible. I said, no, it's not. This is banking. I get it. And we have low leverage loans. They're fixed rate. We haven't had this massive destruction of value. They're going to be fine. And this bank will work itself out. And you just have to be very realistic that the banking team is under stresses that they've never felt before that they're not in control of. And maybe the earlier era of banking, when Ron had a lot of control over his business, I had a lot of control, not so much anymore. So we as borrowers have to be very realistic. And the way you de-risk and hedge that is just don't borrow very much. You know, Just keep your leverage low. And if you're going to go floating rate, make sure you, know, you stress it for higher interest rates so that you can refinance at those levels. So kind of basic stuff. And Ron, you're on the board of five companies and managing your own investments as well. 
How is life looking for you on the other side now? So I am advising all of the companies who's bored, and I work very closely with the CFOs. You want to be the first in line talking to your banks. You want to be first in line. And I think that's really important. And you want to come up with a constructive solution. Because I said this earlier in the discussion, there is a chance we are managing these assets for these banks. They may be the owners. And I go in with that attitude. I want to be the owner of this asset. I really do. I'm willing to invest in this asset, but I need some extension from you. I need you to get me to 2025 or 2026. I will put money in today. If you will give me time, I will pay more money. I would like the interest rates we've agreed to whenever, let's say, our loan renews in 2024. I will agree to that, but I want you to extend me to 2025. Charge me more. Charge me an increased rate. That way, I'm motivated to pay you off because hopefully there's cheaper money. But I'm not going to put $100 into this building today if I think you're going to own it in 2024. I'll put the 100 in it if you give me to 2025 because I expect to own it. Let's work this out. And I want to be the first one having that conversation. Go back to the banks. Wayne has said it. When I first started, the regulators didn't dictate nearly as much as they dictate today so that I could choose the customers I believed in and the assets I thought were going to survive. And I could be relatively flexible. We call it amend and extend. And we did a lot of amending and a lot of extending in 2009 and 10 and 11 to our advantage, because all of those assets paid us back in full, okay? And had we have taken those assets back in 2011, I'm sure we would have mismanaged them, right? And we would not have done as well. So that worked. I believe that if you can amend and extend early now, you probably have the best chance of getting it done, because once the regulators get more and more involved in commercial real estate, the banks are going to have less flexibility. So I'd go in early if I could. Follow-up question for Ron on this, because I had a debate with one of the major brokers uh, over the weekend on, on this topic. Where's the liquidity? So in that situation, I'm going to say as a proxy, Ron, like Calsters and CalPERS faced with that kind of fact set and use them as a proxy for, it could be Ohioisters or just any of the big pension fund systems. Big time pension funds. Yeah. Yeah. And where there's a moment of stress, are they going to play ball with the banks and deleverage and contribute capital to get the amend and extend? Or are they just saying, you know, we're out. Our portfolio is out of balance right now. We have too much real estate. We can't allocate anymore. My opinion is they have to have a fundamental belief that the asset is worth more than the debt or will be worth more than the debt. I don't fault Brookfield for giving back their four or five assets in downtown Los Angeles, their office buildings. They looked at them they're fiduciaries, just like Sturz and Purs are fiduciaries for their pensioners. And if you are convinced that asset is not going to ever be worth more than the current debt, you got to give it back. But if I think I can invest my hundred today, and that asset, if debt rates come down in 2025, and I still can own it, okay, I'm back in the money, I want to be able to do that. So it all comes down to what I think the value of that asset is in the long term. Now, I will also say that if I'm convinced the debt rates are not coming down, a lot of these assets are probably not worth the debt and I shouldn't invest that $100 today. So obviously a lot of analysis and number crunching to be done, but Ron, it sounds like what you're advocating is that as a customer of a bank, you have to work even harder today to be an even better customer of your bank, even though the banks are not empowered in the regulatory environment to be a better lender to you. So. I don't know if I agree with it that way. A better lender to you. The banks are going to follow the rules. 
They're not changing your documents. They're not changing what you and they agreed to. And by the way, if you keep paying your interest rates every month, they're not going to do anything. I'd say it's the customer who's saying, I can't quite make this month's interest payment, or I'm not going to invest another $100 in my building. The bank says, fine, don't invest $100. Keep paying my interest rate. Well, I don't want to do both. So I find a little fault in blaming the banks because they're not being, quote, more accommodative or more generous than the documentation says they should, because I think they always will follow the documentation. It's you're trying to get them to modify it. By the way, I would say you're trying to get it to modify it to their best interest and your own best interest. I think that's where you're trying to get to. Very good point. Thank you. And this has been a really fascinating discussion. I think it's really boiled down to some actionable, understandable, digestible information for our friends and family to really understand where things are today. But I want to rewind now and talk about your roots, your origin stories, your backgrounds, which led you through these experiences that you've had in banking and have led you to the wisdom and the perspectives that you have today. Ron, you mentioned a little bit about your upbringing and growing up in a family that was really based on agriculture. Maybe you can share some of the lessons learned and examples that came from your parents or other mentors that you think helped shape your perspectives and get you to where you are today. I'd be happy to. So again, as I said, I had three sisters and my mom and dad, and we owned an avocado orchard and a citrus orchard, and I worked on it every single weekend, right? That was my job, right? And literally, I can't remember the numbers now, but I made, I was the third. So my oldest sister made 75 cents an hour. My next sister made 60 cents an hour, and I made like 50 cents an hour. It was like a labor organization, a union. And I was like, Dad, I'm carrying everything. My sisters watch me carry it. I'm doing all the hard work. Why are I getting paid better? Right? And my dad says, when you get older, you will get paid better. So it was already an early business, but it was a family business. I worked. We all worked together. Everybody was expected to do their part, and we did. And I can still remember, I did complain from time to time. And my dad would say, if you don't want to do manual work, get an education, and then you won't have to. And so education, a key part of our sort of upbringing, sports and teamwork, a huge part of growing up. And my parents reinforced all of that. And all of those, I think, are what helps in business. Business is hard work. You know, I had 35 years of investment banking. I was on the road two days a week away from my family, by the way. And I probably worked 60 hour weeks on average, and it was global. I never complained about the work. As they used to say, if you don't want the work, don't sign up for it. Okay, <laughs> You can't have both. And I signed up for the job. So, But my upbringing, the hard work, working together, the sports helping me think through how to be a team and a leader, and seeing my family kind of reinforce all those positions, I think are what really helped me get through Stanford and then get into the business world and run a team the way I thought a team should be run. Wayne, similar background experiences for you on the way? Yeah, I don't know Ron's you know, background. I know his professional background, but this is really interesting because it kind of parallels you know, my family structure. I came from a traditional family, mom, dad, younger brother, and we were... My dad and mom were just all about kind of the work ethic and education athletics were at the kind of top of the pyramid, came from a very athletic family, and we all played sports. 
I remember when I was 15 years old, we'd always go to this diner as a family for breakfast every Saturday morning after we did our chores or whatever. And then one Saturday, the owner of the restaurant came over. My dad had a word with him and he went away and said, okay, Wayne, your first day of work here at the diners, I was 15, you're going to be a dishwasher. Harry Moon's hiring you, be a dishwasher and a busboy. I don't know how to be a dishwasher. I mean, what was that? (laughs) You know, in a restaurant and don't worry, you'll figure it out. And that was like the best thing my dad did because he knew I wanted certain things and I didn't object. This is that's just like what you do. And my dad and mom had worked kind of their whole life. And then the next summer was a gas station job. But all of these jobs that we had were very shaping. And going back to Ron's point about that athletics and the importance of sports, I played on number of teams and played lacrosse at Stanford for not all four years, but for a couple of years, really enjoyed that experience and still athletics and fitness and health are a huge part of my life. Thanks to my mom and dad. And on the business side, my mom was, my dad wasn't a great business person. He was an attorney. He loved the law. He's more of a researcher. He loved the law for the law, not so much as for means of making money. My mom was a good investor. She bought a duplex when we were, my brother and I, I was, I guess, in sixth grade. And so our job in the summer was to help her, quote, renovate. We'd go by the duplex and we'd have to rip out carpet and paint and do all the kind of tasks of the turnover. And one duplex turned into another, then another. And my brother and I really didn't like the work. It was hard. But now I look back on it like, that was value add. And it's not too dissimilar to what we all kind of do in our business today. So I had really good family structure, good values. And I'm glad my parents pushed me to learn to work at a young age. And it made my education more valuable later and realize what you appreciate how hard people work that don't have maybe the same opportunities that we've had. So it's just all part of how we were raised. All about the hard work. I just have this picture in my mind of Wayne, you in the back of the diner washing dishes, Ron out in the field carrying a basket of avocados. And then me, my dad put me to work for a roofing and framing carpenter, slinging a hammer on the roof of houses in Central Florida in the summer. We were quite a motley crew, I guess. (laughs) But the hard work and the lessons learned definitely translate and definitely carry over. So I can really appreciate that. And, you know, as a fellow father and as a fellow senior executive in my own business, I know the challenges of taking all of these lessons that we've learned and then conveying them to the next generation. We've talked about building these teams and the professional environment that you guys have created within the institutions. Ron, how were you able to take these lessons that you've learned along the way and pass them on to your team members when you're building that same culture and that same work ethic in your team? I really do think it's all leading by example and talking about it. And it starts with ethics of business, what's fair and what's right. People come into my office and they'd lay out a transaction or here's a point we're trying to negotiate. What should we do? My instinct was what's fair. What's fair, what's appropriate, not what's in it for me, right? And by the way, I've had people who have come into my office and outlined deals and I would approve. And then later it was, you know, that wasn't really the way you explained it to me. And in business, I believe that half truths with an intention of misleading is a lie. I'm going to say that again. Someone tells you a half truth. They know they're misleading you. It's a lie. They'll come back later and say, Ron, I didn't lie to you. I just didn't tell you everything. I would call people out so quickly on that. 
right? And make very black and white decisions around that lack of clarity. So I, I really think that's important. That seeing how you react. And by the way, when you're in business, as long as we have bad things have happened, mistakes have been made. Your team's made a mistake in a spreadsheet, right? Somebody misses something in a document. How do you respond to it? Do you say, my bad, however you do it? And I always say, having been on trades before, when you make a mistake and the minute you start trying to blame others, everybody tries to blame you. When you make a mistake and the first thing you said, I did it, I'm so wrong. Everybody's, oh no, no, Ron, it wasn't you. It was all of us, okay? That's the culture. People need you to step up and take responsibility, in my opinion. And they watch how you react and how you deal with clients, how you deal with employees and the fairness at which you approach it. That's how you want them to act with the people around them. So I really think it's seeing, doing, acting the way you want them to act. Fantastic. One of my datages is that responsibility in business is actually a luxury and accountability is the price that you pay for it. So I'm glad to hear those stories from you, Ron. Wayne, for you, fundamental values in team building and how you pass those along, how would you characterize that within the teams you've built? Kind of goes back to your family values. You know, when I interview people, I think people are kind of surprised. Like I let my team interview all the technical and kind of the knowledge and the experience. I go after, tell me about your family situation. I want to know how you were raised and what were the challenges. And what I'm really searching for is a code of values and what are the ethics? What are the moral acceptability? Because what Ron said in financial services, if somebody gives you an NOI and they say, I think it's kind of like this. And I'm guessing that the rent's going to be $4. Like that doesn't cut it. That's just basically an omission. And everything comes back to, I think, ethics and morality and fairness. And that's where I level set with whomever I'm dealing with. Now, when we're hiring and we're building teams, banking is really interesting because you look for the skill sets you want to really try to identify is you have certain parts of your business like sales and trading and trading, highly technical. These guys write code now. And then you have others on the other side of truly sales. And then there's a lot of folks in the middle. So a balance between the technical, the highly technical and the high interpersonal. And there's room for everybody. But without that ethic piece, you end up with an Enron. Smartest guys in the room and the company failed because of a breach of ethics. So that's the foundation. And what links all of this is how hard do you want to work? You know, what's your motivation? What's inspiring you? Do you have a vision for your career and so forth? And I've always built teams around, you know, you've got guys that are highly technical, really good underwriters, and you have to balance those out with those that have really good customer skills. And as a manager, my model for banking, and serve me well, I'm not saying it's the best because we are kind of in an autocratic industry, you know, folks that are can be dictatorial at times tend to rise up the corporate ladder like any organization. But I think the more modern model is servant leader. And it's always asking your direct reports, what can we do better to help you optimize what you need to do for your team. And on the interpersonal side, where are we missing? Like who's motivated, who's not, what can we do? And that model, it creates a lot of cohesion. And when there are mistakes and there's tons of mistakes and those that don't take ownership quickly can't be trusted. And I find that a lesson that I've tried to hopefully teach my kids. Hopefully I live by it. When I make my mistakes, you take ownership of it. And it all gets back to what Ron said. It's ethics and integrity and fairness. And if you didn't have those growing up 
And it's sad. I mean, some people didn't have the role models that Ron and I had and you, Chad, and others. They've had to create their own core value system, and many very successfully have done it. But so much of what we do in business, what's fair, as Ron said, comes from how do your parents create a fairness standard? So that's the way I break it down. That's amazing. And I really loved what you said about servant leadership. One of the elements of culture in my own company that I think a lot of people have trouble adapting to is when someone comes in and starts working for me as a project manager, for instance, I tell them, I want you to look at me as just one of your resources. You manage me, you own that project. If you need something from me, you come to me and you manage me through that process because I want them to truly have that ownership of what they do. It's a big adjustment for some people who are accustomed to just doing what they're told and not having to have any freedom of thought and not having to have any accountability for the decisions that they make themselves. It's sometimes a rocky road for people to, to get comfortable with that level of ownership. I also was really fascinated by what you're saying, Wayne, about how a lot of these family values, and it reflects what Ron was saying as well, the family values you've managed to incorporate into a professional setting and to apply those for the people who are working on your team. I'm curious if the flow goes the other direction as well. With all these experiences, lessons you've learned in business, everything that you've applied to your career and your life, Wayne, we'll start with you, and I want to ask Ron the same question to dovetail off of what you say. Does that flow back into your family life as well? Do these things that you've learned and the things that you've cultivated as a professional inform the way that you're now parenting and raising your own children? The answer is yes, and I feel very fortunate. I think Ron's in the same situation that we have kids in commercial real estate. So whether it's somebody that's we're trying to build team in the organization or help with the career advice for my daughter and my son, it's the same thing. Kind of gets back to those core values that I'm really hard on people that work for me on these little footfalls and particularly with my kids, because when you're not there, they've got to have the core value system to make the right decisions and not omit and not exaggerate and not opinionate. You know, it's just so based. I just have hopefully taught my team members, like, make it fact-based, do the research, create the evidence. And that comes from the core value. My father is a litigator. We would, he was very argumentative, intellectual sense. And when I didn't have the evidence to present around an argument of, particularly on, on historical, because he loved history, I love history, of why Vicksburg, when Grant invaded Vicksburg, why that was the turning point of the war, we would have these massive debates. And I love arguments that are evidence and data-based and people have conviction around those opinions. So Wayne, that's interesting. Let me jump in with kind of my thinking on that. I hope so is my answer. I believe so in my heart that my children have taken some of what they've seen with me and utilize that in their sort of relationships and friends. I have to admit, my kids are not in commercial real estate. Like I said, my son is a software engineer, but he's focused on startups and he starts things from scratch with five other people and it's entrepreneurial. And by the way, one success, one failure, and now he's off to the next one. We'll see if it's a success or a failure, but I do love the energy he puts into it, the commitment he has to it, and how he pursues it with people he appreciates. My daughter, who comes more from a traditional business standpoint, I hear her on the phone sometimes talking to her work colleagues 
And I like the way it sounds. She's engaging with them. She's asking them questions. She's a little funny, I might add. So I like to hear that. She got that from her dad for sure. I don't know, but I, it's fun to listen to her. I also say, I'm sure all three of us will agree to this, we raised our children to be strong and independent. And then we get frustrated when they're so independent. <laughs> How can they not come back? Why are they asking for my advice and involvement? But we're proud of them. That's what we raised them to be. And so we're happy they're launched in that direction. But remember, another dad joke is uh, money isn't everything, but it is a good reason to talk to your children, <laughs> right? <laughs> I like that one. And Ron, you said your children may not come to you for advice all the time now, but I'm going to indulge and I'm coming to you and Wayne for advice now. And I can kind of extrapolate from what you said, some of what your advice to me would be. But here's the question I have, because I respect and admire both of you, not only for what you've done, but for the families you've raised, the lessons you've passed on to your children to see their successes. You've had children go through Stanford. And as you know, I'm now embarking on that journey as well. For 29 years, from 1994, when I showed up at Stanford, around Stanford, I've always been Chad Hagel. Now I get to adjust to just being Braden's dad. Can you guys give me some advice for how to navigate this next step in my journey as my son goes off to Stanford and has his experience? Well, I'll start. One, we do have something in common, which is you have a D1 athlete. And my son was a D1 athlete at UCLA and at Georgetown. And so that journey is very different for parents, but it's an exciting journey. But I think the more important advice, I think, for any young person developing their career and building their kind of academic girth as they go through as undergrad is just be self-aware. You know, I think be aware of the person you're choosing to be, you know, and that's what I always told my kids. Like you're choosing who you want to be by making these choices. And as we all know, once you get to college, your parents really don't have that much influence over you. So I give them, myself the same advice. It's like be self-aware, be very careful about what you say, what you do, analyze these actions. And those that are more self-aware tend to be stronger leaders later on because they have a North Star. They, they know who they aren't more than they who they are. And they put themselves in positions where they can be more and more successful. But I think the advice I'd give to you is to let your son be, you know, make those choices. And when there's some really heavy choices, like he may decide, I'm tired. I don't want to play anymore. I don't just want to be a regular student. Like my son got that. You can't negotiate that. It's not like a debate. It's like you're choosing and I support your choice. These are all good choices that these kids have in front of them. So that's my advice, Chad. I know, Ron. I think, Chad, you answered the question in your question. You are now Brandon's dad. Full stop. <laughs> you're not Chad Hagel anymore. It's his Stanford, not yours. And I'm sure you're going to do a great job of sitting in the back and letting him go out and do his thing. But it's hard because we all think we know what they should or shouldn't be doing, right? We all know what dorm they should be in or shouldn't be in. We know what classes they should take and shouldn't take. But that's not your choice anymore. So you're just the dad. You're not the Stanford expert. And by the way, it's changed a lot in 29 years. That's the other thing. It's not the Stanford you and I and Wayne knew. It's slightly different. And the kids aren't us. They've changed a lot in 29 years on how they interact with each other and some of their social norms. So 
You now are the biggest, you've gone from being an athlete to a cheerleader, right? You're cheering them on. Everything they do is great, right? You got to be within reason, but mostly you're there for support and encouragement and someone to talk to and provide advice, but not necessarily direction, if I can say it that way. No, it's very, very good advice, Dad. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. And, you know, one of the other legacies of fatherhood that we have tried to preserve and honor here at Datages and Ron, you've gotten ahead because I think if I'm keeping track, you've dropped three dad jokes on us already in this episode. But I want to give Wayne a shot because this is our first time ever having two guests on Dadages, which means we have dueling dad jokes. So Wayne, do you have a zinger that you can share with the audience as well? Depending on, my daughter would say these are all really lame dad jokes, but I'll start. Then they're perfect. And then uh, Ron has one. And we can go back until we exhaust. But this one I like because we kind of touched on it. And I can visualize saying this to my daughter. And I know the eye rolling is beginning and that sort of thing. But what do lawyers wear to court? I don't know. What do they wear to court? Lawsuits. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want me to go again or do you want Ron? Absolutely. Keep them rolling. You're on a roll. You're rolling. Okay. Why was Cinderella so bad at soccer? I don't know. Why? Because she kept running away from the ball. (laughs) God, the ball. (laughs) All right. Here's another one. Okay. Okay. We're having a ball. What did the triangle say to the circle? I don't know. What did the triangle say to the circle? You're pointless. (laughs) (laughs) I got my last one. It's a banker joke, Ron. This one's, (laughs) then I'll quit. I'm done. Where do polar bears keep their money? I don't know. Where do they keep it? In a snowbank. Perfect. (laughs) The snowbank. And I wonder what kind of interest rate they're getting on that deposit. Yeah, right. (laughs) You need to delete all these from the podcast, please. (laughs) Ron's much better. Ron, do you have one more to share with us? I'm going to start out with a story about how unfunny bankers are. We are not funny people. Okay. So my team, we sold a business to a private equity firm. And then, you know, we have a closing event. Right. And you invite the buyer and the seller. And for what? And I wasn't at the closing event, but my team went and they decided to one of these David Letterman top 10 reasons that the buyer bought the business from the seller, thinking they were funny. But a couple of the reasons were they thought it was funny. But one of the reasons they did it because the buyers never really ever understood the actual business. That was one of them to laughter. One of which was because they paid more than anybody else would ever pay for the business. Har, har, har. So my team leaves to drinks. They come back. What a great deal we did. What a great closing event that we just hosted. I show up the next morning. My phone is ringing by the senior partner at the buyer private equity. We're not doing any business with you anymore. You're rude and disrespectful. <laughs> Oops. So much for all those cultural values you work to instill and the great level of customer support. I said, guys, I know you're not funny. You're not supposed to be funny. Just show up, say thank you, buy dinner and leave. Stop with the joke. So I start with the fact that there's a reason I am not funny. Okay. So here's my dad joke that has to do with finance. So a rich miser is on his deathbed and he says to his long suffering wife, honey, just in case I can do something with all of my money in the afterlife, I want you to put all of my money in my coffin so that I have it because you're not going to need it. Okay. And so he dies as they're about to close his coffin. As promised, the wife walks up and puts a metal box and shuts the door. 
And one of her friends says, I can't believe that you gave all of your money. She says, hey, I made a promise. I made a promise. I transferred all of his wealth into my checking account. I wrote him a check. If he can cash it, he can spend it. (laughs) (laughs) If he can cash it, he can spend it. Awesome. Well, and and that really sums up our entire discussion today. When you're talking about it takes credit to make money and preserving the banking system. At the end of the day, if we can cash it, we can spend it. (laughs) Well, gentlemen, this has been a real pleasure, a lot of fun, a lot of really good information. I really appreciate you taking so much time out of your schedules to share your wisdom, your wit, your knowledge with me and the rest of the Datages friends and family. I think we're going to have to take all of these dad jokes and stack them up on our social media and take a poll and let people vote for their favorite dad joke out of all that you've shared today. But seriously, I, I really do appreciate the time. I really do appreciate everything that you're both contributing to me and to the friends and family. This has been a, a great experience. And I look forward to seeing you both very soon at our next Spire event. Great. Thanks, Chad. Really appreciate your preparation and the time. Ron, I always learn from you. <laughs> on your panel or whatever it is, just hanging out. So thank you for your friendship. And Chad, thank you so much. Wonderful spending time with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. And to the friends and family, remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father, and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table, and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do, because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.